of losing money in the stock market roller coaster? Frustrated with the government taxing you into oblivion? Worried about inflation? How do you prepare for so many financial uncertainties? Welcome to the show that will help you develop your game plan. The Financial Quarterback with Josh Jelinski. Josh is a noted financial advisor and president of the Jelinski Advisory Group. And he's here to answer your questions. Call into the show at 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. Now let's kick off your financial future. Here's Josh Jelinski. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback, and we're with Adam Nash. He will be a real treat for our listeners today. CEO and founder of Daffy, angel investor focused on charitable giving. You may have heard of him from his work as a Wealthfront CEO, and I believe Wealthfront founder even, influence in fintech as a serial angel investor, investor advisor, board member in over 100 companies, including Acorns, Figma, Open Door. Uh, Adam is the co-founder and CEO of Daffy, a nonprofit community built around a new modern way to give. So Adam, describe your background for our listeners who may not be familiar with you. Oh, sure. Happy to. And, and, and very gracious in the uh, in the introduction. Yeah, my, my primary role right now, of course, is I'm the CEO and co-founder of, of Daffy.org, um, which I'm very happy to talk about. Uh, Daffy stands for the Donor Advised Fund for You. Uh, but my background started like a lot of people in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I grew up in in the Bay Area. Um, actually, my parents are both doctors. Um, but in school, I ended up focusing on computer science, engineering, um, and then segued into business. And I've had a you know a career kind of bringing technology to new areas. I I started at Apple. Um, when the web became big, I ended up at a startup that went public. Then I ended up at eBay. Um, I ran core product at LinkedIn through the IPO in 2011. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I was a CEO of Wealthfront for four years. Uh, along the way, I picked up some roles at advising startups, working at venture capital firms, et cetera. Um, but most of my career has been about this problem of like, how can we use technology to solve human problems and add value for, to as many people as possible? So what is the latest problem you're working on? Charity? Uh, that's near and dear to my heart. I've spent a lot of time on charitable giving strategies. So what you do with Daffy is kind of exciting. Yeah, no, it, it's obviously a, a passion for me. Um, but it actually starts with my my career. You know, the last 10, 15 years, I, I ended up being one of the early folks in what we now call fintech, you know, bringing technology into financial services and products and seeing if we can use technology to make better features and products for people to, you know, spend better, save better, invest better. Um, but, you know, in 2020, it was amidst the pandemic. It, it really had occurred to me that, you know, all this great technology, you know, why can't we use that to help people give? Giving is so important to so many people. I mean, 60 million households in the U.S. give to charity every year. And yet the the best financial product in the area, which is the donor, donor advised fund, really hadn't received a lot of investment um, in the past few decades, right? Very sleepy technology, very sleepy category. And unfortunately, mostly focused on the ultra wealthy, right? You know, talking about millionaires and billionaires. And so, you know, my work on Acorns, my work at Wealthfront had really led me to believe that, no, we could reinvent this product, this platform for everyone um, and really support people on what they want to do, which is in most cases just to be more generous more often. And so that's how Daffy was born. So like I said, 
Daffy, it might be a little bit of a cute name, but it stands for the Donor Advised Fund for You. Um, but really, all of our effort goes into how can we make it as easy as possible for people to put money aside for charity, get inspired to give, and then at a moment's notice, be able to give that money and support the causes and organizations they believe in. It's cool. What type of adoption have you had so far? Oh, it, it's exciting. Actually, it's been, um, it does remind me of the early days of some of the other sites I've, I've worked on in the past of, of kind of LinkedIn or, or Wealthfront or, or even Acorns. Um, you know, we only launched a couple of years ago, but we already have thousands of members. Um, we, have, we have accounts, you know, it, it's very inexpensive to get started. We're free under $100. So I think our minimum contribution is $10. And so we have accounts that size. Most of our members have accounts in the hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. You know, most people support three to five charities every year and we help them do that. Um, but we now have accounts going up all the way up to 10 million or more. And so it's been really amazing to see um, how much excitement there is out there um, for better technology, for a better platform uh, around this important area of giving. So explain a donor advised fund for people who don't know how it works. Yeah, I'm happy to. And, and it, it, it's um, don't feel bad if, if you haven't heard of it. Um, the Donor Advised Fund is, is one of these product financial products. Fantastic. It's been around a very long time, uh, I think over 70 years. And yet most people haven't heard of it because, frankly, if you don't have a high-end financial advisor, if you don't have a high-end accountant, you, you probably had no one tell you about it. But a Donor Advised Fund is just a tax-advantaged account. Um, for charity, kind of like a 401k or an IRA is for retirement, a 529 plan is for college savings. Um, for most people, if you just think of a donor advised fund as an account for charity, um, you'll get the basic idea. Um, it has wonderful features to it. It's a regulated area, but basically you put money aside into a donor advised fund. You get an immediate tax deduction for making a charitable donation. That money is then invested tax-free in a range of portfolios that you select. And then whenever you want to give that money to an operating charity, you just make a recommendation for a grant and that goes through. Um, in our case, it goes through in some cases in minutes. Um, but um, that's the basic idea of a donor advised fund. And, and like I said, if, if you give to charity at all regularly, if there's organizations you regularly support, um, having a donor advised fund is just phenomenal. Just having one place for your giving, all your tax receipts in one place, um, it's a much better way to give. Why is it better? Well, I think there's multiple reasons, and I think it depends. The biggest reason that it's better is because it is good to have all your giving in one place, right? So for example, you know, my wife and I put aside money for charity every year. Sometimes we actually even put aside stock or ETFs. Um, and, and, and that motivation is very much because we support a certain number of organizations every year and we want to have that money available to us. And so just having one place where the money goes in, it's automated. Our contributions are automated. Um, the organizations we support, we have recurring donations. So they go out every year. And then all of our tax receipts are in one place. And so that's phenomenal. Um, the second reason it's much better is actually the tax benefits are really, really useful. I mean, we live in a country where the tax year, I mean, the IRS is pretty strict about it, January 1st to December 31st. And for many of us, we have some years where we have more income, we do better. There's some years that are not as good. And so having a donor advised fund means that anytime you need to put money aside for charity for tax reasons, you can do it and then take your time making sure that you're giving that money to the organizations that have the most impact. 
And so whether you're doing it for kind of personal financial management reasons or for tax reasons, Donor Advised Fund is a fantastic product. I mean, it looks fantastic. I'm on the website. So you kind of set this product up because it's a lower cost alternative. I'm looking at the website, you know, you're comparing it to Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, 0.54 fees, 0.65, 0.6, where the minimum annual cost for you guys is 36 bucks a year. How do you do it so cheap? Well, I mean, the answer to that is is just like a lot of things, it's it's technology. But uh, just to clarify, I would say that you know when we built Daffy, our goal wasn't per se to be the lowest cost service, although for most people we are. Um, but we really did take a strong point of view on the business model. It, it turns out most donor advised funds today from the big shops are all done through a partnership with investment firms, right? And investment firms tend to have a business model. They charge a percentage of assets. And that can make a lot of sense when you're managing money. Um, but when it comes to money for charity, you know, the problem with that business model is that, you know, their revenue is basically tied to you not giving the money to charity. Right. Like if you if you open up an account with Fidelity Charitable at one hundred thousand dollars and you give ten thousand dollars away, their revenue actually drops by 10 percent. And so when we started Daffy, we said, well, there must be a better way to run a donor advised fund. And we ended up landing on a business model that's very common in the nonprofit industry, which is based on membership. Right. The San Francisco Zoo, the local community center. There's all these nonprofits that are based on membership. And so that's what we built Daffy around. So Daffy is actually free for accounts under $100 to get started. Um, most of our members pay $3 a month, which is the $36 a year you talked about. And our family plan is, is $5 a month. We even have a high-end tier for people who want to make unlimited contributions of stock or crypto um, of $20 a month. Um, but the reason we seem so inexpensive compared to the other platforms is because it's just one simple, transparent, low rate. And that might seem strange in the world of financial products, but it turns out for a for for a software platform, you know, making three, five, or twenty dollars a month is actually a great, great membership fee, and that more than covers the costs of running a platform like this. So, donor advised funds have taken off of recent, but yeah, people don't really know about them. It's not a household name. I've had churches, even churches, we called me trying to trying to uh, build new pastor, kind of took over the church. He said, Josh. I know what you do. I want some help. I've thought like your your model might be a great way to like, okay, if churches want to tithe, because here's the thing, a lot of people worry, is my donation going to the right thing or the cause that I like? And I, I don't know, I just got this idea popped in my head. If you had this kind of transparency where you have this DAF to invest it in funds that you pick from or, or whatever it might be, wonder if you could partner with charities so people could even see the transparency of where their gifts are going to. Well, I think that knowing where your money is going to and making sure that your donation you know, has the impact that you want is, is a fairly universal concern around people who make donations. And I love that you brought up tithing and et cetera, because recurring donations is such a big deal for almost every nonprofit organization, right? They, they, they have an operating budget every year. Right. They, they, many nonprofits would actually prefer to get a regular donation than one large donation up front, given the way that they run. Um, but we have members of Daffy who tithe on the platform across a wide range of denominations. We have people who make recurring donations 
And we give them a lot of control over how they communicate, et cetera. Every charity that you follow on Daffy, um, we actually pull in news or updates from those organizations so you can hear about what they're doing. And that's turned out to be a very popular feature. But most nonprofits aren't set up to take money in all these different ways, right? They're, they're not there to invest in technology or payment systems. They're there to for the organization, for the cause. And so actually a lot of our, our best stories have been um, you know, around institutions. Uh, you know, it turns out one of our first donations on the platform right after we launched was uh, a member who wanted to give a Bitcoin to their congregation in New York. Um, and of course, the congregation didn't take Bitcoin. And so they saw our announcement for Daphne and said, oh, I get it. I download your app. I give you the Bitcoin and you'll get the cash to the congregation, to the organization. And so um, it, it really is a much better way, I think, for people to control um, putting aside money for charity. I think it's also much better for the nonprofits because they don't have to worry about any of this. They can just connect with their donors um, and run the organization and, and, and do what they do best. Fantastic. So people give, you know, we're, we're entering Christmas, Hanukkah, holiday season. What are some innovative ways that people can give this, this Christmas, this Hanukkah? Oh, that's great. Well, there's there's a, a bunch of things. And, and Daffy has has really tried to make it easier to give and inspire people to give in different ways. Um, you know, probably my favorite feature of the holidays, of course, with Daffy is just taking advantage of that family plan. Um, I have all my children on the plan. And so every time my wife and I make a donation, they get an alert on their devices. I mean, many of you probably know that these days, one of the best ways to get through to your children is actually through an alert on their devices. <laughs> it turns out to be a just a back to the 21st century, um, but also that they can make recommendations for donations and you can approve them. You know, why only have that for Amazon or Apple or Xbox? Why not have that for giving? Um, a second great feature that we're seeing a lot of people excited about is what we call Daffy Gifts. Um, anyone with a fund with an account on our platform, you can take $100, $20, whatever amount, and you can send a link to someone and they can pick whatever charity in the US they wanna give to. Um, but you're the one funding it. So it's a nice way to give the gift of giving in some ways. And then lastly, of course, we just launched Daffy Campaigns, right? And so for a lot of us, there's a lot of organizations we support, schools, food banks, um, religious institutions, you name it, um, where you want to raise money for a time of year. Um, we're actually raising money right now. Um, I'm running a campaign for Feeding America to help um, families with food insecurity this holiday season. Right. You know, and every dollar you donate can help feed someone else. And so Daffy campaigns are a great way. If you have an account with us, you can run a matching campaign. Right. I'm matching the first ten thousand dollars of donations to this charity. But whether you're trying to raise one hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, running a campaign so that you can reach out easily to your friends, your family, your colleagues your neighbors and inspire them to give. I mean, let's not forget about eighty five percent of donations happen because someone asked that person to donate. And so we try to empower our members and remind them, if you wanna make a difference, you can give money. Of course, that's fantastic. You can volunteer, um, but you also can have an impact by inspiring others to give. And so we've tried to design all of our features to help people do that. And you have the community, I guess, from your background in LinkedIn, a community aspect to the app. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, something very natural. And as you mentioned, it's very common 
with most technology products, this idea of being able to connect with others who have common interests or support the same organization. And yet, when you look at most donor advised funds, they kind of feel dry. They feel like uh, checking accounts, like a financial account. And so when we designed Daffy, we designed this idea around inspiring others. And so on the platform, you can follow and connect with your friends or neighbors, um, other people who support the same organizations you do. And when you give, you can give anonymously if you want to. But we also ask our members if they want to leave a public note about why they support the organization they do, they can. And wow, these notes are really just phenomenal, right? Most of us have stories, real human stories about why we give the way we give. Um, Maybe someone close to you got ill and this organization helped them when it really mattered. Um, Maybe it's an organization that your family has been supporting for generations, right? Um, but how would you ever know, right? We don't talk about this. That type of information can't compete with shopping and dating and news and politics and all the things that go around social media. Um, we had a lot of success back in the day at LinkedIn, um, building a platform that was really focused around careers and your professional life um, and, and, and providing a place where people could talk about those things. Um, we're hoping that Daffy is similar in terms of getting people to share why they give and who they give to with others to help inspire them to give more. I just kind of idea popped in my head about funerals. You know, you, you, you see now in lieu of flowers, please donate to this organization. Do you have anything for that in the works? Uh, actually, we already live. It's amazing that you came up with that um, because actually you know, some of our members had the same idea. Um, we get all of our best ideas at Daffy from our members uh, but this idea of, of running a campaign to support the organizations in memory of someone close to you past is really close. Actually, my mother just ran a campaign uh, on the platform herself. And so with the Daffy campaigns feature, you can pick one organization. You actually can pick up to six. It doesn't have to be one. But if there's a set of organizations that a person was dedicated to in their life or that was meaningful in supporting them during their life or at the end of their life, I think a wonderful thing to do is to run a campaign in honor of that person um, to help raise money for the causes and the organizations that were meaningful to them. Fantastic. You guys do stuff with digital charity gift cards. Explain that. Yeah, that's uh, that's the feature I was talking about a little bit earlier, Daffy Gifts. Oh, right? okay. So um, we, we've probably all received one of these gifts um, where someone says, hey, in lieu of a gift, I've donated a certain amount of money to this organization oh, okay. in your honor. Yeah. Um, but it turns out my co-founder always felt strongly that um, it's actually the recipient of the gift who should be picking the charity, um, not the giver. And so Daffy Gifts works that way. So if you have an account with Daffy, very easy. You can just go to the website, Daffy Gifts, and um, you know you can pick the amount of money. Um, you get a link. You send it to the person. When they click on the link, they can pick any of the charities that are supported on the platform. And we support almost every legal charity in the U.S. over over 1.7 million charities across the country. Um, They pick the charity, hit submit, and it's really just that easy. And so, especially for the holiday season, um, we see a lot of people creating gift cards, um, $20, $50, $100, even more, um, as a fun way to give something during the holidays, um, but also have an impact and letting the recipient actually have a choice on on where they want to send that money. Do you anticipate Daffy kind of evolving with charitable remainder trust and things of that nature? Or or do you 
kind of want to focus on the donor advised fund? Um, you know, it's not impossible. The truth is our mission at Daffy um, is really simple one, is that we want to help people be more generous more often. Um, and we think that we can do that through a combination of the donor advised fund and by investing in technology um, to make that easier for people. Um, but actually, we, we will likely expand in the future. Any feature, any capability that helps people either put more money aside for charity or get more money to charity is likely something that we'll do. So for now, we have our hands full. Um, it turns out there's a lot that we can do to make donor advised funds great for people. But don't be surprised if we add on to that in the future. I'm, I'm sure you know every platform I've been a part of, as you get bigger and more successful, you learn more and more from your customers about what they want to do. Um, and it gives you ideas on how to expand. So I'm really intrigued by your work. Are you a Stanford professor, an adjunct? I know you have a class. Yeah, I'm, I'm a lecturer. So I'm an adjunct lecturer at Stanford. I teach a class called Personal Finance for Engineers. It's actually the seventh year I've been teaching it. Wow. So, so let's talk about that because I read some article about financial planning for couples and I was intrigued by that. Yeah, actually, I have that topic. I just covered that in the class last week, uh, believe it or not. Um, but um, yeah, it's a personal passion of mine. I've always been very passionate about personal finance and have felt that not enough people get education about basic personal finance. Um, frankly, I think that this should be done more in middle school and, and high school than at the college level. Um, so in my career, right, I had a technology career. Um, as I went through companies like eBay, LinkedIn, Wealthfront, et cetera, and I, I rose up from kind of an individual contributor to a manager to an executive, I would start giving these informal talks um, to my teams or other folks at the company who, who wanted to learn more. Um, and this actually became somewhat well-known. I think Business Insider ran a piece almost a decade ago. Um, you know, everyone, you know, everyone wanted to hear the personal finance talk that Twitter employees heard before the IPO or that Facebook employees heard before the IPO or LinkedIn. Um, and that was my talk, Personal Finance for Engineers. And thankfully, Stanford um, is a flexible enough institution that they were supportive of turning that into a full course. Um, and so and I make the materials public because, um, honestly, I want to inspire as many schools as possible to create a curriculum that makes sense for their community, for their students, so that we can get more personal finance education out there. And what are some highlights from that that you want to share with our listeners that you think people don't really grasp? The truth is, I, I think the the basics of personal finance are pretty simple. I mean, you know, what I anchor the whole course around is just the idea of spending less than you make, you know, investing prudently for your financial goals, um, being conscious of fees, being conscious of taxes. Um, so a lot of it is just the basics. But if you looked at the structure of the course, I actually start with behavioral finance and the emotions that people have around money. I then talk about compensation and all the different ways that people make money and, and income. Talk a little bit about you know, that idea of spending less than you make, um, having a budget, saving, um, and strategies for that. I talk a little bit about net worth, you know, what you own versus what you owe. And I, I do a special session on debt because you can't talk about personal finance in the United States without talking about the dangers and the opportunities that are tied to borrowing money. I do a section on investing so people can help grow their assets over time and, and, and about compounding and, you know, slow and steady wins the race, you know, how to get rich slowly. 
And then, of course, I wrap that all together with a discussion of how to tie that to different types of financial goals that people might have. And so, believe it or not, that's actually most of the course. Um, I have some special topics I cover. I actually let the students pick a few topics every year. Um, I'm actually going to run that survey again. Last year, the students wanted to hear more about things like venture capital. Um, they wanted to learn more about derivatives. And I think they also wanted to learn more about crypto, um, not surprisingly. Um, but it's really, uh, it's turned out to be a phenomenal thing. And, and all the students who take the class actually form this alumni group. There's now been thousands of students who've taken this class. And so it's it's been a wonderful community by itself. Wonderful. What do you think is the thing that people don't know that you would have expected them to know? Well, there's a lot of surprises. I mean, the great thing about teaching students is you get a real sense for where young people are. You have to meet them where they are. And most of the students in my in my class range in age from kind of their late teens to their early 20s. We do have some graduate students who are a little older, but that's kind of the age. Um, and so some of it is, is not surprising. I mean, when um, we were going through this boom time, people had a lot of questions about investing and, you know, it, it may sound like an evergreen problem, but that's because it is, you know, convincing people that there's no secret to making money quickly risk-free, that actually the way that most people find financial success is by spending less than they make, saving and investing that money, letting that money compound over time, um, being careful about fees and taxes. I mean, I know that sounds obvious to probably most of your listeners, but it turns out um, every year, every generation has to learn the same lessons. Um, you know, in terms of other things, I think that are always surprising to me, it, it's always actually surprising to me that, that young people have this reputation of, you know, always being into the latest get rich quick scheme of wanting to buy penny stocks or crypto, this, that, whatever. But, you know, most of the students in my class, I will tell you, a lot of them are the first person in their family to go to college or, or the first person in their family to go to a school like Stanford and they feel this immense sense of responsibility and, and almost anxiety um, that they weren't trained. They don't know what to do and they don't want to mess it up. And so for me, it's, it's really rewarding to kind of go through these basics. Um, I didn't have this class when I was in school. I did take a lot of different coursework, but you know, a lot of what I learned about money, I learned from uh, my grandmother and, and my grandfather. Um, and not everyone has family or relatives or, or, or friends who can teach them the right things about personal finance. And so um, I guess I guess that means that the, the most surprising thing to me is that, you know, we still are sending people, you know, these are very smart, smart students. Um, they have a lot of opportunity ahead of them. But it turns out being smart isn't enough. Right. It's not a, it's not about IQ. Uh, you know, if, if you don't know what a credit card is, if you don't know how debt works, if you don't know what how investing works, et cetera. Trying to just figure it out by doing a bunch of web searches is really not a great way to go about it. Yeah, no, I love some of the highlights. You are not rational. <laughs> Liquidity is undervalued. Cash flow matters. The magic of compounding. Good investing is boring. So, so that's very... Yeah, well, I try, like I said, I try to have these clips out there, but those really are the lessons. You know, it's funny, the liquidity one, very common mistake in Silicon Valley, et cetera. You know, you know, talking about what it means to have money when you when you need it, um, oh, yeah. and the difference between what you're worth on paper versus, you know, actually having access to your money. It, it sounds like a simple lesson, but I'll tell you, as a whole career in the technology industry, you know, more than 25 years, you know, a lot of people who are very smart and actually very successful make this mistake all the time. But yeah, that last one is my favorite. Um, the I just did that class a couple of weeks ago that good investing is boring. 
Um, it's always hard to convince people of this. I mean, um, there's only so many great quotes in the industry. I remember, um, I think there was an interview once where where Jeff Bezos was interviewing uh, Warren Buffett. Um, and, you know, Jeff asked, you know, Warren, you know, hey, you've been talking about good investing your your entire career. Why do you think most people don't listen to you? And, you know, Warren ends up saying this kind of pithy thing where he says, well, in my experience, most people aren't interested in getting rich slowly. And um, and there's some real you know wisdom in that. And so I, I try to bring some of that to the students. The goal of the class is not to teach them everything that they need to know. Um, it's to spark a little bit of interest, but it's also to give them some framework. So when they're out there talking to people, reading articles, learning about things related to their financial goals, that they at least have some sense of how things fit together. Um, but I hope that they'll be learning about how to lead a healthy financial life for you their entire life. That's fantastic. You also talk about couples kind of being a missed topic, financial planning as a couple. I mean, and I think even in your top five topics, I would add maybe two more, but, um, and one sure. of those would be divorce is the single greatest destroyer of wealth. Among all my clients with significant amounts of money, or maybe you already do that in your class, but I give a talk to freshmen in high school last year, and I gave this uh, talk on the millionaire next door and how one of the key attributes of the millionaire next door is like 91% of them were married to the same person for life or something. It was some crazy stat. I forget what it was. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I do talk about it, but because in my class, most of the students, like I said, late teens, early 20s, yeah. um, the truth is, is only so far I feel like I can go down the path of talking about couples and marriage and, and all the issues before, you know, I start getting that reaction that I get from my own children when I talk about these topics where they're like, dad, you know, stop. But um, sorry, I have teenagers at home, as it turns out. You know, my, uh, my, my daughter was in the audience. And, and she was like, oh, dad, you know, but it was surprisingly well-received. Now, listen, you're 100% correct. Like, let's let's be clear. Um, I think the people underappreciate the costs and, and the financial damage that comes from divorce um, or actually even, even unmarried. Um, there are a lot of financial issues. Remember, this is one of the top reasons that couples end up breaking up and financial infidelity, um, financial security, all these issues also overlay with power and, and and a lot of the dynamics and relationships. So I think it's it's worthy of a course by itself. There's there's no question. Um, what I tend to focus on um, a lot with my students when it comes to couples, and the reason I include it, um, is actually it's a lesson that most financial advisors learned a long time ago. And, and most great financial advisors and wealth managers run their practice this way, right? They focus on households. They focus on couples. They don't focus purely on individuals. And that's because as difficult as leading a good financial life is for an individual, the minute you have more than one person involved, it, it becomes almost infinitely more complicated. Different goals, different timelines, different emotions, different priorities. And let's not forget, like I said, that relationship has all these other dynamics to it. I mean, if I sound like um, my mother's a, a psychologist, um, she is, she's, she's clinical faculty at Stanford and been practicing over 40 years, but I... I take this very seriously. So what I actually talk about with the students are just the basics of if you're in a relationship and if you're starting to commingle finances, what does that look like? What are the 
strategy that people use to to deal with the common expenses versus individual expenses. Um, I'm actually even an investor in a startup right now that's actually trying to take another turn at doing this and helping people um, with a platform that really starts with a household, starts with a couple rather than starting with an individual, um, which I'm actually excited about. But um, I agree with you. There's a lot to be done there. And I think that, you know, talking about things that people aren't prepared for, how many people get married without any serious conversation or advice about how to deal with the financial aspects of combining the two financial lives of two people and building a household together? Um, That's another area that really needs a lot more support. And I think that unfortunately, most people don't get it until too late. Yeah, I I think you're right on. On this article from your blog, it talks about kind of yours, mine, and ours method. I don't know if you did much research on this, but I mean, I remember hearing from back in the day, you know, couples who keep their finances generally separate are more likely to get divorced. And couples who typically have a more kind of this is our money, although there there are problems with that potentially, are more likely to stay together. And I don't know if you've done any work on that. I really haven't studied it much since like 20 years ago. I, I did read up on this and, and read through things, but honestly, there's, there's not um, enough research, I would say, and, and really good data on this. Um, one thing I became convinced, though, in, in the research that I did was that there is no one system that's right for everyone. And if you go into the data, there's other confounding factors that make it hard to give general advice. So for example, yes, I think it's true that people who keep their finances two separate lead two separate financial lives, they may have a higher incidence of failure, but at the same time that might be because the type of people who keep their financial lives separate, uh, maybe they, they were married before. Maybe they got married older, and so they had a more complex financial life. Maybe they had children involved or other dynamics. It, it may not have been the cause of the relationship and more of a symptom of how it formed. And you know, maybe it turns out that people who get married younger and build a financial life together tend to have more of their finances commingled um, and are more successful for different reasons. And so without ascribing judgment there, what I do in the class is I try to go through three different ways that people set it up that that range and kind of commingling. Um, but um, I, I don't know that there's one answer, but the, the most important thing, and I think the most important insight I got from this is it's not just about the money, right? Money is rarely the goal by itself. Money is, in most cases, a means to an end. Um, but it does tie to these emotions, right? It, it ties to the power dynamics, who makes the decisions and for how much. By the way, you want something interesting, talk to couples and just ask them, you know, how big a purchase, how big a financial decision would they be willing to make without consulting their spouse? First of all, you won't get the same answer because they've never actually talked about it. And by the way, once they give you an answer, you start looking at the actual patterns they have, and then you discover there's all these exceptions. Um, maybe they made a purchase without talking to their spouse. Maybe they made an investment without talking to their spouse. And so there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think that, you know, my wife and I, um, just, you know, best practice for us, um, we took a cue from some of the better financial advisors out there. My wife and I sit down together every year and go over our finances together, everything, spending, assets. We look ahead to what financial issues might be happening the next few years and, and goals we have. Um, but I, you know, most couples don't 
put time aside to have those conversations. Yeah, I think just having the conversation is a great tip. So you spent a lot of time with Wealthfront. That's where I first heard of you. The role of financial planning and fintech, AI, talk about that a little bit. What innovations do you see down the pike? Well, I'm happy and I'm flattered. I mean, uh, I have to be careful here. It turns out companies don't always love their former CEOs talking too much. Listen, I, I think when I was at Wealthfront, it was obvious even, I think, 10, 15, 20 years ago that we could use technology to greatly broaden out access to sophisticated financial advice, right? You know, for a lot of different reasons, um, most people out there need help. They need financial advice. Um, but economically, it's very difficult to provide it on a regular basis. Um, and so I, I think this idea that the you know, Wealthfront was built on that you could use technology to actually greatly broaden out access to everything from, you know, the right way to structure a portfolio, um, rebalancing, how to withdraw money intelligently, put money aside intelligently, and even more sophisticated strategies like tax loss harvesting and direct indexing all came out of that kind of insight more than a decade ago, which is phenomenal. Um, now everyone's very excited about AI, and for good reason. Um, I think that there's a lot of problems that used to be very, very difficult and expensive to do that AI is going to make incredibly inexpensive to do. And that's a phenomenal opportunity because that means that you can solve real problems for more people. And so I think that there is a, a role to play, and I'm very excited about the space going forward in terms of applying these technologies to helping people with their real problems. Um, and some of it is just a matter of consuming all the information and synthesizing it for people um, and combining that with best practices or, or insights so that people can figure out the right thing to do. But um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be done there. Um, I think there's a lot to be done still around spending, a lot to be done around investing and saving. Um, and obviously with Daffy, I think there's a lot to be done around giving. This is my theory. If you have all these, I just wanted your opinion on it since you were kind of a leader in this space. Having all these robo-advisors, seemingly the advent, I don't know if you've noticed this, the advent of robo-advisors becoming mainstream, Vanguard, index funds kind of taking over really the landscape of investing. Advisors are using them now. You know, it's kind of just mainstream now. It seemingly is creating a market where every other year, I don't know if you've noticed this, the market collapses due to some exogenous event. I think December 2018, market went down 20%. March 2020, market down, you know, what, 37, 40% due to COVID. January 22 to about October of 22, another 20 to 40% decline. Maybe even next year, people are, you know, surmising. Do you think that, you know, we used to have the seven-year business cycle? I wonder if, because now everybody's in the same basic thing, if it's creating like, you know, this wave effect of boom and bust cycles that are now like compressed. I don't know. Where people can just hit sell instantaneously, get rid of everything, and then buy it back in a year when they feel better about the economy. Yeah, I, I'm always not sure with these with these things. You know, there's always how it feels, um, you know, versus the data itself. And you know, the truth is, with technology and social networks and smartphones, it's not clear to me 
that the markets have been more volatile in any way. That's different than history. Um, but it certainly can feel that way when you're hearing about it all the time, right? And you're getting these alerts and notifications and people are chattering all the time. Um, you know, from my point of view, automated services, robo-advisors, you know, like Wealthfront, Betterment, Acorns, et cetera, basically picked up a little bit where Vanguard had started and saying, hey, is there a better system that kind of gives you some immunity to all that noise and all that volatility, right? Like I, I can tell you, you look at the inflow data, outflow data for Vanguard, it's very different than most mutual fund companies. It looks like index fund investors just tend to save, right? You can see they put money aside when the market's bad. They put money aside when the market's good. Um, it's somewhat boring, but they kind of keep doing it. So I think there's a good indication. We saw the same patterns at Wealthfront when I was there and, and certainly on other platforms. And so I think there are things we can do to basically correct for our emotional nature a little bit. Because let's face it, there are people out there who spend their time always thinking about the financial markets and are experts and, and think that they have a way to pick better investments. But for most people, that's not what they do. It's not what they do for a living. It's not where they focus their time. Um, I actually talk about this in my class, right? For most people, you know, doctors, most doctors become successful by being great doctors, not by, you know, their investment picks. Same thing for lawyers, same things for engineers. And so I think that index funds, robo-advisors, all these technologies that automate that behavior. I mean, you and I both know that, you know, most people wouldn't save for retirement the right way if they didn't automatically have that money coming out of their paycheck for their 401k. I mean, we even apply that at Daffy for giving, right? You know, we, we actually help people automate putting money aside for charity. So I think there's a big role to play there. Um, that being said, we definitely seen with the boom, um, you know, uh, in stock trading recently, et cetera. Um, there definitely is a cycle. Actually, it's funny. I, I tend to think of it more generational than a seven a seven year thing that, you know, you know, markets have this kind of short memory, at least people do. And so uh, over a period of time, people kind of forget the lessons, right? I mean, when I came out of college, it was the 90s. And certainly when I think about the activities and the boom that was going on in the late 90s, um, it started feeling familiar a few years ago, yeah. especially during the pandemic. You started having the same feel of like, wow, people think it's amazingly easy to just, you know, make multiples on their money with no risk. Turns out to not be true. And so I do think that this gets back to financial education. I, I think that, you know, in general, there's plenty of lessons to learn from, um, but it's kind of the duty, I think, of everyone who's been through it to constantly repeat those lessons um, to help guide new generations kind of through their financial lives. Going back to Daffy is kind of we round out the interview. Are you working with Okay, XYZ, like an organization, let's say a church, are they able to tether into your app and say, hey, download this app and you can weekly give here or somebody, you know, giving to a shul? I was just curious. Yeah, so we've seen some of this. I mean, the beauty of Daffy is that actually nonprofit organizations don't have to do that. Like it just works. Like we we take care of the work. Like what I told you. Uh, you know, that one that first donor who wanted to give a Bitcoin to his congregation in New York, the beauty of it was the congregation didn't have to do anything, right? He, you know, he downloaded Daffy. He contributed the Bitcoin to us. Within 10 minutes, we had it there. He wanted to make the donation to his congregation. We sent them the money. Done. They don't have to do anything. Um, but you are correct. A lot of nonprofit organizations are seeing opportunities of linking to us. So, you know, for example, every every organization has a page on Daffy. We get a lot of requests to improve the information there and add to it and 
update it. And that's fantastic. Um, we have had organizations say that, hey, if you want to set up a recurring donation to us, you can just download this app and set it up there. And now with our new campaigns feature, um, a lot when a lot when donors run these campaigns, a matching campaign for an organization, we're seeing organizations actually put links to those campaigns with graphics, you know, on their own websites and in the emails they send to their members. And so I, I think there are a lot of things that nonprofits can do. And actually, this is one of the areas I think that's very exciting for me. I think that as Daffy grows and we go from thousands of members to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, I think we could do a lot to help nonprofit organizations reach the type of people, not just for donations, but, you know, nonprofit organizations, they need volunteers. They hire employees, right? They need people on their board. They throw events. And there's all sorts of things I think that nonprofit organizations struggle with because they can't really find that community of people who believe in giving. And so we're hoping that actually the Daffy community can be valuable that way, just the way that LinkedIn turned out to be very valuable um, to companies in terms of finding great talent. No, exactly. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Adam Nash, CEO of Daffy, innovating the world of finance yet again with uh, the donor advised fund for you. Uh, any parting thoughts in the last 60 seconds? You know, this may sound simple, um, and this is about giving, um, but if you don't have a goal for your giving, seriously think about having one. Um, it's just like having a goal for retirement or for college or anything that you do. Um, if giving matters to you, just answering that basic question of how much do you give to charity every year and making sure to put that money aside, I think is a phenomenal benefit. And of course, you can use Daffy to do that for you. Um, but at minimum, I would encourage everyone to have a goal for their giving. Make it intentional. It'll be more rewarding for you. And the research shows that people who have a goal for their giving give 32% more than people who don't. What about stock? Well, let's say I have stock from a company. How do I gift that? Yeah, this is turns out to be one of the great tax-saving secrets that the wealthy tend to know, but isn't widely, widely known. But the truth is, if you are giving cash to charities, you are probably making a tax mistake. Because when you donate stock, and it doesn't have to, by the way, be stock, it could be an ETF, it could be a mutual fund. Um, but if you've held that stock for more than a year and you have a gain, then you get this double win. Because when you donate the stock, first of all, you get to deduct as a charitable deduction against income, the full market value of those securities today. And second, you never pay the capital gains taxes, right? Every investment you make, when you have a gain, that's really not all yours, right? There's a liability there. When you sell that stock or that mutual fund or that ETF, you're gonna owe capital gains. And so it's a huge benefit. The problem is, is that most nonprofits aren't set up to take stock or ETFs or mutual funds. And that's one of the real benefits of a donor advised fund like Daffy, is that you can send us stock, you can send us ETFs, mutual funds, even crypto, get that tax benefit and that tax receipt right away, the money's invested in a tax-free portfolio, and then you can give it to any charity, whether or not they take stock or ETFs, it doesn't matter. They don't have to worry about that problem, we do. And so we see a lot of interest this time of year, every year, where people realize if you've held an index fund for 10 years, it probably has a lot of gains. If you've been fortunate to invest in a good company, it probably has a lot of gains. And if you sold something, you may owe taxes on those gains. 
Um, a great strategy is to make sure that every year you donate some of your appreciated stock or, or ETFs to charity using a donor advised fund to help defray that tax bill. And as a bonus, get more money to the charities that you care about. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Adam. Adam Nash, Daffy.org. Thanks so much.